0: Welcome to another episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Aparna Prasad and I'm a medical student at the Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University. I am joined by Dr. Sunil Kapoor, who is a professor of pediatrics who specializes in pediatric pulmonology. He serves as the current division chief of pediatric pulmonology at the Children's Hospital of Georgia here in Augusta, Georgia. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Kapoor.
1: Thanks, Aparna. It's awesome to be here.
0: So today we're going to be talking about chronic cough in children. Typically, when a child has a cough, we immediately think of some type of illness. But what happens when the cough persists? How long is a viral cough supposed to last before we need to be concerned?
1: So cough is one of the most common things you're going to see in a pediatric practice. Kids cough. It's, it's what they do. It's actually a good thing to cough. It's one of our primary means of airway defense. So when you cough, it's usually a, a manifestation of our body protecting ourselves. Coughs can linger with anywhere from 10 to 14 days of coughing with viral illnesses. But in terms of consensus definition, a cough becomes chronic after about four weeks of consistent coughing.
0: And you said before there are like multiple potential causes for a child to cough. How do you determine if a cough is coming from, let's say, like a recurrent viral infection?
1: So usually with recurrent viruses, and again, that is the number one thing to think about when you're talking about a chronic or persistent cough in children. Typically, a acute cough will last around 10 days, but a cough that will go on after that gets into that more chronic condition. Usually kids in childcare will have recurrent episodes of viral infections, and an important thing to know is that the cough is the last thing that gets better from a viral infection. So when you are having recurrent colds, although it seems like the cough is there every day, what's really happening is the cough from a previous illness hasn't resolved by the time the next illness is starting. So instead of this cyclical pattern, families are seeing and feeling a cough that never goes away.
0: Okay, I see. So an important question to ask is how long the coughing episodes last and if they've ever been sick with a cough for more than two weeks.
1: Absolutely. I think that is a consistent and a good way of getting to that information. Again, families are very much disrupted by coughs, especially like most things in pediatrics, it gets worse at night. So anything that affects a child sleeping and by default a parent sleeping becomes a significant primary concern. So teasing that apart is really important.
0: And how would you treat this kind of cough?
1: So the important thing about a cough is distinguishing is it something that you're worrying about or not. And I'm sure we're going to be talking about those more worrisome coughs down the road. But in terms of treatment, really, it's time. It's time and TLC and support. Uh, over-the-counter cough medicines have not been shown to be of benefit in terms of cough, and there are side effects with that, especially if they're dosed inappropriately in children. There's been some very, very adverse outcomes along those lines. And it's important to really align with family what the expectations of a cough are, and with everything else looking okay, that the goal of reassurance and watchful waiting is an appropriate first, and sometimes second step
0: does it matter if the cough is wet or dry
1: so that's a great question and that is one that is a very significant point that you really want to hammer home when it gets to your history coughs tend to be more worrisome when they are wet Kids don't produce mucus. They can't cough. Well, let me rephrase that. Kids don't produce sputum. They produce a lot of mucus, but they can't really produce sputum. So coughs that are wet generally are more indicative of an increased secretion pattern, which can lead to secondary infections. Wet coughs can often be much more associated with underlying pathologies, especially when they become chronic.
0: So why don't I start us off with a case presentation and we can kind of keep this discussion going. Sounds awesome. So we have a 10-year-old boy who has had a dry cough that occurs about two to three days of the week for the past three months.
1: All right, so that's something that we would see pretty consistently in clinic and also in Jen Pete's clinic.
0: So my initial thoughts for this are he probably has one of the top three causes of chronic cough, which are asthma, post-nasal drip, or reflux.
1: Those are very reasonable places to get started. Why don't we go through them and take them one at a time? So the first one you mentioned is asthma. So that's something that I can talk about for hours on end. It's something that I would bore your ears off if I'd given the opportunity. So what, why don't you start? Tell me what you think about asthma and cough.
0: So asthma is a condition in which a person's airways become inflamed. Then they narrow and swell and produce extra mucus, which makes it difficult to breathe. And asthma can develop at any age. Exactly.
1: So that's a great starting description. So what clinical signs would a child present with that would make you think of asthma or put that at the top of your list?
0: So I know that there's something called a modified asthma predictive index in kids who have four or more episodes of wheezing, and that can help predict future asthma in pediatric patients. So, the major criteria include a parent with asthma, patient history of atopic dermatitis or allergen sensitivity. And then minor criteria include wheezing that's unrelated to colds, eosinophils greater than 4% on a CBC, and a patient with allergy to egg, milk, or peanuts. Excellent.
1: So, and what do we refer to these trio of conditions the asthma, atopic dermatitis, and allergen sensitivity?
0: That would be the atopic triad, right?
1: Exactly. And the associations and people talk about an allergic march where you go from one to another to another. And classically, yes, the presentation begins with eczema and then other signs of allergy and then asthma and allergic rhinitis. Although that's not a universal. I would like to think about it more as a interrelationship rather than a progression. But those are the things that typically happen together.
0: Okay. And those are all IgE mediated conditions?
1: Yes. All three are associated with increased IgE. And again, when you have that allergic marker, your index of suspicion for asthma changes. And always, when you're getting your history, thinking about kids with risk factors, you look at them differently than you look at other kids. So what other history would make you suspicious uh, for asthma?
0: Having a nighttime cough would be one, and then maybe a decreased exercise tolerance or a history of wheezing.
1: Excellent. What if he had RSV or significant rhinovirus when he was an infant?
0: Well, I heard that if you had RSV before you're two years old, you have a higher chance of developing asthma later on in life.
1: Yeah, and that is something that's been looked at quite extensively. And there was always the question when I was in medical school, the question was, does having early severe RSV predispose you to having asthma? Or is that predisposition to asthma cause you to have that more significant RSV presentation? And the data is very much in favor of early significant viral infections, RSV and or rhinovirus in that vulnerable time frame, increasing the risk factors for subsequent diagnosis of asthma. And that effect can wane not for the age of eight. So it's a very important part of assessing risk for future wheezing. So typically when you're looking at these kids with bronchiolitis, what do you use to treat them with?
0: So I'm pretty sure the answer there is supportive care. I know that bronchiolitis typically does not respond to albuterol. The American Academy of Pediatrics currently recommends that inhaled albuterol not be used in routine care of children with bronchiolitis. 100%
1: agree. So let's say you're confident this kid has asthma based on those risk factors and that other clinical presentation. If you were seeing this kid in your office or in a pulmonology clinic, what would be the first thing you'd want to do?
0: So we'd want to evaluate his lung function, and that can be done by a pulmonary function test or PFT. I know that typically PFTs are ordered for kids who are six years of age or older because performing this test, you have to put on like a nose clip and have a mouthpiece and you have to listen and understand when to take that deep breath and forcefully exhale.
1: I agree. And, and I would encourage anyone who's listened to this podcast, if you've never tried to do a pulmonary function test. Do a pulmonary function test because how hard it is is, is a challenge and what we ask our kids to do to, to get this data. Some adults and adolescents have a really hard time doing it. So when you get a PFT and you can get that quality study, what does it tell you?
0: The PFT measures the FEV1 to FVC ratio. So FEV1, or forced expiratory volume, measures how much air a person can exhale during a forced breath in one second. And then FVC, or forced vital capacity, is the total volume of air that can be exhaled during a maximal forced expiration effort. The FEV1 to FVC ratio represents what percent of your total lung volume that you can expel in that first second. A lower ratio would be more consistent with airway obstruction.
1: Right. So a lower FEV1 to FVC ratio suggests airway obstruction, which is typically what you see in asthma. So if this child's ratio was 0.6, what do you think?
0: So anything with a ratio less than 0.8 or 80% in adolescents and 0.9 or 90% in younger kids, indicates airflow limitation. So then if, let's say, this is that kid who we were talking about earlier and his PFTs came back as 0.6, if we combined that with his clinical history and physical exam, that would help to confirm a picture of asthma.
1: Right. So, And that's a really, really important point. Asthma is a clinical diagnosis. There's not one test that you can do that will answer that question for you. With appropriate clinical history, with an appropriate physical exam, and with spirometric data, you can very much make that diagnosis. And if you have a question, you can also measure the responsiveness to albuterol. That can be done in several different ways. But the most common way is to use a spirometry before and after albuterol. And if you can see an improvement in FEV1, specifically greater than a 12% increase, in FEV1 that confirms bronchodilator reactivity, which in a high-risk individual confirms a diagnosis of asthma. Again, recurrent reversible airway disease is is a great way to think about it.
0: Is there like a certain age at which you can diagnose asthma?
1: Well, that's a hot button question. It can begin at any age. And again, I think there is this rumor out there that I've heard in multiple places that you can't diagnose asthma for the age of two, but you absolutely can. Again, based on risk factors, based on clinical pattern and a component of bronchodilator reactivity, especially if you can start isolating symptoms that occur in the absence of respiratory viruses that are also bronchodilator reactive. Again, that's more likely after the age of two that you can get that amount of information but if you're seeing that before the age of two, you absolutely can. Spirometry and objective measures of lung function, typically below the age of five, we can't do, so it is a clinical diagnosis, but you can make that diagnosis at any age. I am hesitant to make the diagnosis before the age of one because of structural airway issues and other things along those lines, but you can certainly make under the age of five. Most common age is before the age of five. So tell me what you know once you make that diagnosis about the treatment of asthma.
0: So I know that the treatment of asthma is stepwise and it depends on the severity of that asthma and that there are four main types. So intermittent asthma is defined as having symptoms less than two days a week and nighttime awakenings less than two times a month. And you also don't really have any interference with your normal activity.
1: Right. And I think uh, an important thing to remember and our listeners to remember is that intermittent asthma doesn't necessarily mean mild asthma. They changed the terminology in the second most recent iteration of guidelines to allow for the notion that even if you have intermittent asthma, you can have a severe flare uh, intermixed with that. So using a short-acting rescue agent such as albuterol is the best way to accomplish that and is the mainstay of therapy.
0: When do they usually use the albuterol in these cases?
1: So it's an as-needed medicine. When you feel symptoms that you need relief for, you use it. However, if they're using reliever therapy frequently, the guidelines say more than twice a week, or if they're having nocturnal awakenings, or if it's something that impacts their day-to-day lives, it is something that you want to step up from that therapy. So the magic number is that rule of more than two episodes a week, you want to reconsider what category of asthma they have.
0: Okay, and so that's where that differentiation between intermittent and persistent asthma starts.
1: Exactly. So based on frequency of symptoms and severity of symptoms, there's elements of impairment and elements of risk. But again, mild, moderate, or severe persistent based on the frequency and intensity of symptoms and intermittent when you're not requiring that preventative therapy.
0: And the treatment for it depends on the type of asthma?
1: Correct. As you step up in terms of therapy... Mild asthma, mild persistent asthma, you would use a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid as your maintenance therapy based on increasing symptoms. You increase the strength and complexity of the medication regimen and addressing other issues such as allergic rhinitis or gastroesophageal reflux, any other comorbid conditions that families have. So now that you talked about asthma, since we're focusing on chronic cough, what other things would you consider in your differential going maybe a little bit north in the airway?
0: What about like allergic rhinitis and sinusitis?
1: Correct. The technical and precise term for that is upper airway cough syndrome, which is much more fancy. And that includes allergic rhinitis, non-allergic rhinitis, and sinusitis. So what do you know about these conditions?
0: Well, I know in addition to constant chronic cough that they're having, there's usually also other upper airway abnormalities, like sometimes patients will describe something being like stuck in their throat or a sensation of secretion, straining from their nose or their sinus down the throat.
1: Great. Yeah. Upper airway cough syndrome, otherwise known as postnasal drip, you can have two mechanisms, one just from inflammation in the upper airway, as well as mechanical irritation of cough receptors from the postnasal drip in the pharynx. Oftentimes, it's a really important question when you're seeing kids in the office is just to ask them directly, where do you feel the cough is coming from? If they point to their chest, it tells you one thing. And if they point to their throat, which oftentimes they will, it gives you a lot more information.
0: That's good to know. I remember you doing that in clinic, and it was really helpful to kind of differentiate when the coughs kind of all sound the same.
1: So what other symptoms would you expect to see in kids who have upper airway cough syndrome?
0: So these kids usually sound kind of stuffy. They have lots of like sniffling and sneezing. And then on physical exam, you'd expect to see allergic shiners around their eyes or cobblestoning in their throat and swollen nasal turbinates.
1: Exactly. And they also will do the horizontal salute. So the hand right to the nose and pointing up, which is a pretty common thing. So in terms of the eye findings, what do you know about allergic shiners? Why do people get that?
0: So allergic shiners, I think that's due to congestion of the nose and sinuses. They're kind of like a bluish, gray, purpley discoloration beneath the lower eyelids, and it kind of sometimes looks like bruising almost. And I think this discoloration is due to the reduced blood flow in the little tiny veins under the eyes, and they just kind of enlarge the pool blood, and they're not draining properly.
1: Good. And, and when we're look, doing a physical exam for the upper airway, we also tend to look in the throat looking for changes such as cobblestoning. What do you know about that?
0: Yeah, so cobblestone throat results from that irritation in the throat because of the post-nasal drip from infections and allergic reactions. And there are like these bumps that you can see in the back of the throat. They usually go away once whatever causing the irritation resolves.
1: Exactly. And parents also like looking at those things as well. So sharing that physical exam finding with parents oftentimes have them buy into the diagnosis uh, a little bit more. So typically when you have these issues, you want to isolate for allergic uh, issues using an antihistamine, Uh, maybe a nasal steroid can be helpful. Non-allergic rhinitis tends to respond more to uh, nasal steroids than to antihistamines. But again, nasal sprays, if you can get families to do them correctly, which the vast, vast majority of them don't do it correctly until we teach them, and sometimes they still don't do it correctly after that, you'll also be impressed with how many healthcare providers do a nasal spray incorrectly because we've never learned. But I tell you, if you use those things correctly, they can really, really be impactful.
0: I will definitely remember that. So the third most common cause of a chronic cough is gastroesophageal reflux, right?
1: So when we think of uh, chronic cough as a respiratory problem, but chronic coughs can also come from other issues. And so reflux is one of those things that I think is a really interesting potential uh, for chronic cough pretty consistently. So what do you know about reflux and its linkage with cough?
0: So I know that reflux is the passage of gastric contents into the esophagus, and that can happen with or without regurgitation or vomiting. And then when the reflux leads to more troublesome symptoms or complications such as esophagitis or strictures, it's referred to as gastroesophageal reflux disease or GERD.
1: Excellent. So it's very established with good literature and good data that in adult's chronic cough can be due to reflux disease. It's a little more complex in children. The data is, uh, if you talk to a gastroenterologist, the data isn't all that good. If you talk to a pulmonologist, the data is great. So there is some controversy in terms of the linkage between reflux and cough. But when you think about cough, there's two real main categories that international guidelines have come to, specific and nonspecific. And as you can assume by the name, nonspecific cough refers to a cough more than four weeks in duration with little signs or symptoms to point to an underlying process. Reflux is part of that specific cough category.
0: Okay. Do you mind explaining that a little bit more?
1: So you introduced the topic of reflux as a very primary cause of cough. I agree with that when you have other signs and symptoms that point to reflux. Reflux as a non-specific cough in children actually isn't as common. So when you think about reflux as a means for cough, there's two ways that you can have that. One can be from secondary aspiration. So a- after a child or a baby eats formula or gastric come up, they come up past uh, far enough that they then get aspirated into the area, and that physical sense of aspiration can cause a cough. The other way to think about aspiration is primary aspiration, and that comes from suck and swallow discoordinations, things going down the wrong way or the wrong pipe, so to speak. And typically, children with that will have an either an anatomic reason for that, a laryngeal cleft or a cleft palate or some developmental delay, either from a neurologic issue or from prematurity where their suck and swallow hasn't been cured to the same degree. It's always something to really, really consider when you're concerned about development for any reason to think about primary aspiration or suck and swallow discoordination as an etiology for the cough. Other things that these children often have are NG tubes, which allows a child to get the calories they need, but again, that's also a physical irritation of the back of the throat and that in and of itself can lead to coughing. So getting a detailed feeding history both during the feed as well as after the feed really does help figure out whether or not there's a linkage between feeding reflux or a primary aspiration, and a cough. So really, when you dig deep, oftentimes you'll get a specific reason for the cough. But again, a non-specific cough to go to reflux, the data doesn't really bear that out that well.
0: Could pneumonia be like one of those complications that would come from, let's say, a kid who had reflux and then was aspirating?
1: Absolutely. A recurrent uh, pneumonia or aspiration pneumonia is certainly something that can be a complication of that. The interesting thing about pneumonia, though, um, we don't have cough receptors in our alveoli. So if you have a truly low bar pneumonia, oftentimes cough is not a significant part of that in the acute phase. But in terms of a chronic irritation, cough in, in an aspiration pneumonia or an aspiration pneumonitis, cough is certainly a primary uh, presentation.
0: How would we go about diagnosing this kind of cough?
1: So I think, again, most everything else in pediatrics, and specifically in pediatric pulmonary, it starts with your history, getting that really detailed pattern of feeding. So for reflux-induced cough, a lot of the cough can be temporally correlated with eating or right after eating. Uh, Oftentimes, it's worse at night when they're lying flat. It can be either dry or wet. There's often other signs of reflux in young babies, arching behavior or fussiness after eating, in older children, lots of belching or burping or abdominal pain afterwards. And in those situations, doing an empiric trial of reflux therapy for four weeks with the PPI is a great way to make that diagnosis and also might be therapeutic along those lines. In younger kids, if you're really worried about structure or anatomy, an upper GI is a great way to to look for anatomy. Not a great test for reflux, but a really good test for anatomy to make sure you're not missing anything else. And if you have concerns related to primary aspiration leading to a cough, a video swallow study is a great way to assess for dysphagia.
0: Right. I remember learning that PPIs are first-line therapy for acid-related GI tract disorders in kids, so putting them on something like omeprazole would be the first step. What do you think the treatment would be for, like, aspiration?
1: So for primary aspiration, that's hard. That's very hard. Uh, I think the first thing is answering why. Is it an anatomic issue or is it a functional developmental issue? So changing uh, in positions and pacing with feeds, nipple sizes or thickness of formula feeds, it's easier to aspirate on thin liquids than it is on thicker liquids. Working with speech therapy is also an important thing in learning those feeding skills. Typically, with uh, reflux, again, monitoring diet, changing consistency of formula, and then reflux medicines as an adjunct can also really help with the cough. But again, in terms of feeding issues, and if you're really concerned about reflux, that's not getting better with primary therapy, it's often a good time to get your friendly neighborhood pediatric gastroenterologist involved. Because again, is something else mimicking reflux? Or do we just need more aggressive therapies along those lines, like eosinophilic esophagitis or other anatomic issues or things that they would consider at that
0: point? That's really good to know. Thank you.
1: So what else? We've talked about um, reflux, we've talked about aspiration, we've talked about asthma and upper airway cough syndrome. What else do you think could be something to think about in your differential with chronic cough?
0: What about something like foreign body aspiration? I know that kids are like always putting things in their mouth,
1: right? Yeah, them and some adults, uh, but that's a really good point. So foreign body aspiration is something to always think about, especially when you have an acute onset of cough. Again, a lot of the things that we talk about build up gradually, but when families will say on X day, boom, that's when they started coughing. That's when you really want to think about that. Typically in that age of uh, two to three years where they're really starting to explore and putting everything in their mouth or if they have an older sibling who's playing with things and that can cause a problem as well. Typically you also will see unilateral signs on a physical exam.
0: Have you ever seen a chronic cough associated with foreign body aspiration?
1: I have. It's rare, but I, I have. Usually the history is suggestive enough that you can diagnose these acutely. And when it does get chronic, you can you do really worry about structural lung disease afterwards with bronchiectasis or other complications. But again, it's, it's really important when, again, getting back to history, any episodes of choking or any episodes of events at the dinner table or little toys that are missing around that time could be a, a concerning history. If you do have a history like that with a sudden onset cough, really thinking about getting a look down the airway is an important thing.
0: I see. That's a good point. So should imaging be involved then?
1: Right. So again, imaging can be a challenge, but it is a right place to start. So typically you would get a chest x-ray, including lateral decubitus views to look for hyperinflation. So you know about lateral decubit eye views?
0: So that's when the x-ray is taken when the child lays down on either left lateral or right lateral side. And these lateral films help to see if there's air trapping that could be caused by an inhaled foreign body. So normally, the dependent lung will collapse partially in the normal patient. But when there's an obstructive foreign body, there'll be air trapping, which would look like hyperlucency of the dependent lung.
1: Excellent. Yeah. So sometimes you get lucky and on a straight PA film, you can see unilateral hyperinflation and that in the right history is very suggestive. But typically in younger kids, you're going to need that bilateral decubitus view. So something else that I oftentimes will see is a habit cough. What do you know about that, Aparna?
0: So that's when someone develops a cough, usually during or after an upper respiratory infection. But the problem is that the cough kind of persists, even though all the other respiratory symptoms have resolved. And it's usually associated with psychosocial stressors, like anxiety disorders or conversion disorders. Something that I kind of have a little difficulty with is differentiating that being psychosocial versus a more organic cough.
1: Yeah, and, and that's a challenge, especially in the reality of pediatric practice when you're seeing kids on in rapid fire and you've seen 100 bronchiolytics in a row. When do you, those alarm bells go off? So that's where really good clinical history can be helpful, especially regarding onset and timing. So a habit cough is a very classic cough. It's harsh. It's barky. It is disruptive to everyone in the room except for the child who's coughing. It seems normal to them. Oftentimes, is a very repetitive nature, arm coming up, deep inhalation, and a harsh and forceful cough. And a key component of that history is what happens once they go to sleep. Classically with a habit cough, they cough throughout the day, can cough every 15, 30 seconds throughout the day. And as soon as their head hits the pillow and they fall asleep, the cough goes away. And when you have that history in the setting of a chronic cough, especially a dry cough, that makes you really think about a habit cough. And then diving back in terms of other psychosocial stressors that could be going on at the home or at school. You don't have to have associated mental illness in terms of anxiety, depression, or other things. I see this very commonly in kids, especially over the last couple of years, but it can be an initial presenting sign of some other issues with anxiety.
0: What are the initial steps for treatment in a habit cough?
1: Well, I think the first thing is recognition. And oftentimes that's really the art of medicine in terms of how you present this diagnosis to a family. Remember, they've been coughing for weeks on end, family is stressed, Oftentimes, there's interruptions with school behavior. And if you walk in the room and go, it's all in your head, you're going to run into some problems there. So really having a nuanced approach to presenting the diagnosis, I tend to go back to physiology in terms of that and presenting it as a way of this is the body just reacting differently. And we just need to retrain the body from that. So the treatment of choice is really recognition, acknowledgement, and then some behavioral tips and tricks to get them to distract themselves and have them fix their cough themselves. I typically will have them, if they buy into the diagnosis, by the time they leave the office, they're cough-free.
0: Oh wow, that's crazy that can just take a little bit of helpful guidance and that cough can just kind of resolve on its own.
1: Yeah, and and usually it's it's a mixed bag from the family. On the one hand, they're really relieved that the cough is gone. On the other hand, they're like, this could have been fixed months ago. Yeah, it's, (laughs) it's usually an interesting conversation. So I think we've come up with a pretty great differential for chronic cough. Uh, especially in terms of that dry chronic cough. Let's go to a new topic, something called PBB or protracted bacterial bronchitis. This is a diagnosis based on a continuous wet or productive cough for four weeks. And that's where we really get into that distinction between dry and wet cough. The cough usually responds to antibiotics and the standard antibiotic used is amoxicillin or clavulanic acid, also known by the brand name of Augmentin. So child looks usually pretty well on PBB, Aparna, what do you know about this diagnosis?
0: Yes, I actually learned about this diagnosis with you, Dr. Kapoor. On my first week, I think that I was in Palm Clinic with you. I know that PBB presents as more of this chronic wet cough, and that can last for like at least four weeks or longer. I think one of the patients that we saw had been coughing for like months on end.
1: Yeah, so remember that coughs that warrant reassurance and return and watchful waiting are really those dry coughs. So when you have that wet, productive, or moist-sounding chronic cough, that's when you really start thinking about PBB.
0: Okay. And do you get any labs or imaging if you suspect PBB in a kid?
1: So it is a clinical diagnosis. But again, the standard evaluation that you're doing for a child with chronic cough, you would still do in this case. So if you get a spirometry, you expect it to be normal. I mean, you don't expect an obstructive pattern. So a normal FEV1 to FEC ratio. Oftentimes, by the time they get to me, they'll have had a chest x-ray already done, and that will only show peribronchial changes, no focal infiltrates, or significant hyperinflation, which is what you would see with airy reactivity. If they've had a CBC, maybe a little bit of a neutrophilia, but otherwise a normal CBC, and if they've had an immune evaluation, immunoglobulins are typically normal. So if you have on your standard evaluation things that are off in those things, Focusing on that specific cause of cough makes a lot of sense, but if those are normal, you get back to that condition of PBB or protracted bacterial bronchitis. But let's go back to viral infections for a second, since, since that is a main cause of cough in kids.
0: So I know that viruses are the main infectious agents of acute respiratory infections in children, kind of like what we talked about in the beginning of this podcast. And I know that viral infection rates in children kind of differ for different ages and seasons and things like that. RSV is usually pretty high in infants and then it goes to adenovirus and then flu kind of after that increases with age. I also know that people usually fall more sick with viral infections in the winter, also are more likely to have the flu at that time too. What do you think is the risk of having these recurrent viral infections in kids?
1: So the biggest thing with recurrent viral infections is the symptoms that they lead to and the impact that it has on a family and the child in terms of school attendance and daycare attendance and missed school and work days by the the family. Typically, most viral infections are benign. But if you have that recurrent episode of viral infections, do you get concerned about secondary bacterial infections. Once you have either increased mucus uh, sitting in your airways or in the back of your throat, that is a great culture medium for bacteria to grow and to thrive. So the component of secondary infection is concerning. So Aparna, when you think about secondary bacterial infections, do you, are there common ones that you worry about?
0: Yes, some come to mind. I think of Staph aureus, Strep pneumo, Neisseria, meningitis, H. flu, and Klebsiella pneumoniae.
1: Excellent. And don't forget, Proteus enterobacter and Citrobacter, those can oftentimes be a complicating factor as well.
0: Right. And what would we look out for to make sure that a secondary infection does not occur?
1: So clinically, viral illnesses like we've talked about, 10 to 14 days, And when you get a secondary infection, instead of that normal gradual improving pattern, oftentimes symptoms linger or then intensify around the time of a secondary infection. So changes in terms of intensity or pattern of cough, going from dry to wet are things to think about when you're worried about a secondary infection.
0: Does fever factor into this at all?
1: Well, from a parent's perspective, it does. But we all know fever is an important part of, of a general immune response, right? So a fever that persists a few days into illness is okay, but an intensifying fever or a new onset fever midway through an infectious course is concerning in terms of a secondary process and warrants just relooking at at the situation. Right. So say we have a child that has symptoms that never seem to get over his illness despite treatment and and has a persistent wet cough that lingers for more than two weeks and this becomes a, a cycle. What else do you begin worrying about?
0: I would be thinking of some sort of immunodeficiency.
1: Exactly. Kids with immunodeficiencies usually present with recurrent infections, prolonged, wet, productive cough, again, longer than that 14-day sort of cutoff. They'll oftentimes have a history of poor weight gain, a history of other bacterial infections. Maybe they've required tympanostomy tubes early on for recurrent otitis media. So when you get that history, where would you start your workup?
0: First thing I would really want to check would be their immunoglobulin levels to see if it's lower than normal. Yeah,
1: that's a great place to start. So common immunodeficiencies in pediatric patients, uh, transient or uh, hypogammaglobulinemia of infancy, selective IgA deficiencies. And most of these kids will have normal cellular immune system, phagocyte function and complement, but they are characterized by recurrent bacterial respiratory infections. Just as a plug in terms of things, when you're ordering your immunoglobulins, it's very unlikely to require immunoglobulin subclasses on first order. So sticking with the IgG, the IgA, the IgM, and the IgE and not getting the subclasses, those are very specific. And I, I tend to leave that in the realm of the immunologist.
0: So what can be done for these kinds of patients?
1: Well, in the majority of situations, especially for kids who have transient hypogammaglobulinemia or isolated mild IgA deficiencies, really no treatment is necessary. Uh, repeating levels, making sure that they are tracking in the right direction. You also want to be a little bit more aggressive with antibiotics when they have clinical bacterial infections, but usually a conservative approach is warranted. Some of these kids do require prophylactic antibiotics, and usually that's when we get the assistance of our allergy immunology colleagues to help manage those particular ones. But again, if you are concerned and you have low immunoglobulin levels, there can be more serious underlying conditions. So don't hesitate in getting those kids looked at more formally if you have those suspicions for immune dysfunction.
0: Good to know. So we talked about PBB and we also talked about immunodeficiencies um, If you see a kid with a wet cough, what other considerations, what other things are you thinking about?
1: So, again, common things occur commonly. And, again, I want to reiterate that the majority of chronic cough in children is benign. But there are some things that are worrisome, again. And when you get into that chronic wet cough, there are a couple of conditions that you really want to make sure aren't existing. The first is cystic fibrosis. CF historically was underdiagnosed and diagnosed late. Now with newborn screening it's a lot easier to be diagnosed and you very rarely will have those kids at five, six, seven years old who have been undiagnosed. But chronic wet cough, failure to thrive, loose stools, you really do want to think about CF. Another condition along those is ciliary dyskinesia. Ciliary dyskinesia in my opinion is one of the most underdiagnosed conditions in pediatric pulmonology. It is associated with a chronic wet cough, early rhinitis, early and consistent cough, as well as recurrent otitis media. Classically in ciliary dyskinesia, there's also unexplained neonatal respiratory distress. So if you have that constellation of symptoms, don't hesitate to look into that a little bit further. Again, I think 10 years from now, we're going to be looking at ciliary dyskinesia, again, as a spectrum with a whole lot more genetic information than we have right now both of those conditions will lead to bronchiectasis, which again, chronic wet cough, bronchiectasis is the final common pathway for those conditions. But bronchiectasis can also happen following a viral infection or a bad bacterial infection. So again, when you have a chronic wet cough that's not getting better, especially with chest x-ray issues, you do want to consider that as a diagnosis because, again, making that diagnosis enables you to do a lot of really productive techniques in terms of enhancing mucociliary clearance.
0: I see. That makes a lot of sense. And that kind of brings us to our next point that I wanted to talk about. When should a pediatrician decide that it's time for a referral to pulmonology?
1: Well, I think that's a great question, and it's one that I get consistently. So when you have a chronic cough that is not getting better after first-line issues in terms of bronchodilators or if you're thinking about PBB with a round of antibiotics and you're still in the situation... I think that's something that you really want to consider. The other thing to think about is really gauge the parental anxiety along those situations. Again, parents are concerned, and one of the golden rules of pediatrics is when a parent is concerned, listen to the concern. Oftentimes, they know better than we do. So if there is a significant parental anxiety level relating to the cough, send them along. Happy to take a look at them. If you're worried about asthma, I think there are a couple of things that I would consider. One is, uh, is the child having difficulty maintaining control of their asthma with standard treatment? Are they able to exercise? Or are they missing a lot of school? Kids with asthma have a three times rate of school absenteeism than kids without asthma. So getting that as part of your history. And if you're not getting that control, send them along. You don't have to keep going to the intensive care unit to need a pulmonologist for your asthma. Are you needing more than two courses of steroids a year? Are they seeing the inside of the emergency room or the urgent care? So in those situations, I think getting specialty help in terms of asthma makes a lot of sense. I have the blessing of being able to spend my entire visit talking about respiratory stuff, where in the general pediatric world, it's just a, it's just a fraction of time. And so we have that luxury and we have the ability to really focus on those issues. And also, if there's systemic issues, failure to thrive, you're worried about developmental delay, more significant infections, recurrent pneumonias, any of those things, I would have your friendly neighborhood pulmonologist take a look.
0: Those are some really great points. Thank you. I've really enjoyed the discussion today, but unfortunately, it's about time to wrap up this episode. But let's take some time to summarize the key points for our listeners.
1: I think that's a great idea. I'd say the first thing when you're talking about differentiation with chronic cough is going in that wet or a dry cough. That's really going to tell you where your differential is going to lean in. Again, chronic wet cough is more often pathologic than chronic dry cough. Dry or more raspy cough creates a differential that we talked about in terms of asthma or upper airway cough syndrome. Reflux, if you have specific history pointing towards that. And a good history is really key in narrowing down the more significant differentials in terms of worrisome things. How long the cough occurs? Does it occur more day versus night? What is the age? What are their comorbid conditions? What is the family history? Putting all those pieces of the puzzle together really helps. And again, conducting a thorough physical exam and then a really focused laboratory evaluation. And and I think with that, you're going to get the correct answer with putting the child through as little as possible the vast majority of the time. And again, when things don't smell right to you or the family, getting some help.
0: Those are all great points, Dr. Kapoor. I think it's easy to feel overwhelmed when a child has this complaint of a cough because there are just so many factors that could be causing it. But breaking it down, like you said, and kind of going step by step really makes the process so much easier. Thank you so much for spending the time today going over this case and working through all the different reasons for chronic cough in children.
1: It was awesome. I had a blast.
0: And I want to give an additional thanks to Dr. Rebecca Yang and Dr. Dion Adair, who provided editing and peer review of today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only it should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. Free CME credit is also available for this episode. Please refer to our show notes and website for the link. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.